Hey everyone, welcome back to Lead at Work and at Home. Hope you're having a great day. Thank God for warmer weather. I think I might have that, was it sad? Seasonal affective disorder? Because when the weather gets warmer, my mood just seems to get better. And I'm sure you can relate to that. Um, thank you for all of the feedback from the last episode about seizing the teachable moment. I loved hearing and receiving emails from so many of you talking about what you took away from the episode and how you were able to apply some of those concepts. So please continue to email me, mark, M-A-R-K, elevatedleader.com. That feedback really, really drives me to want to continue to put out what I hope is some really thought-provoking content. Today, I'm really excited to share with you my talk with former DePaul Athletic Director Jeannie Lenti Ponsetto. If you've never heard Jeannie talk, you are in for a real treat. We focus a lot on the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Title IX law that was signed by Richard Nixon in 1972, a very pivotal moment in the evolution of women's sports and women's rights. And there's probably no one suited better to have this conversation than a very good friend of mine and someone that I've admired from her for a really long time, former athletic director Jeannie Lenti Ponsetto. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi, Jeannie Lenti. How are you? I'm good, Mark. How are you? It's so nice to hear your voice. You as well. You didn't call me Marky, Jeannie. Why is that? You, you, <laughs> I've only had two people call me Marky in my life. My <laughs> aunt Arlene, who's probably listening and playing Mahjong, and Jeannie Lenti Ponsetto. Well, it, you, that is one of my favorite names, too, but I figure we're probably past that stage now because you're no longer a, a student at DePaul yeah. and working, working in my department. So I, I figure you've advanced past that now that you've got your own gig and, and you're doing your own leadership thing. So I, I think I'm going to be more respectful and refer to you as Mark. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. And I was actually trying to think how long I've known you for. And I think the year I figured might have been like 1987 when my dad first came to DePaul running a camp. I know he met Mike, your brother. And it's really, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I've, I've always admired your leadership. And I think the thing that I think has separated you more than most people I've met, you always knew every person's name. And on this podcast, I talk a lot about relationship building. It always struck me that you knew the, you know, the marquee basketball player's name, but then you also knew the person on the cross country team. I thought that was a really great trait that you had. Well, I think you know this because you've run the family business for a long time and working with children and, and obviously Fred's camp and all that you've done. And as a teacher and educator, you learn everybody's names. I mean, I think you want everybody to feel valued and feel important. And one of the most important thing that you, you can do is to know their name and to know something about them and be able to build that relationship with them. So, you know, for me, it always was pretty natural and it was how I was raised and, and, um, you know, so I always felt like it was a really important thing for, for me to be able to do. And, and I've learned from some of the best teachers and coaches um, in the country. And so um, I'm glad that you noticed uh, and I appreciate that. But it, it is something that I think as an educator that you also have that same gift. And I, as I was doing my research for our chat today, you were inducted to the National Italian American Sports Hall of Fame. How, how was that experience? Because I'm, I've been trying to be inducted into the National Jewish American Sports Hall of Fame, but um, I didn't think that like tiddlywinks would be an appropriate sport. So what what about the National Italian American Sports Hall of Fame? Well, it was absolutely a phenomenal experience. I mean, you know, to be in a Hall of Fame with Mario Andretti and Tommy Lasorda and Joe DiMaggio and Mary Lou Retton and 
you know, Mike Piazza, who I actually co-hosted the event with one year. Um, It it was a a terrific honor, you know, to be an Italian American has always been a great source of pride for me and for our family and for our Italian heritage and community. And, and um, so to be honored and with such great company and, um, it was it was amazing and it was so incredibly rewarding. I'm not so sure that I deserve to be in the, the company with that group, um, but it, it certainly um, was nice to be recognized and continue to be a part of that and and participate every year and induct all the other new members as well. That's awesome. And the genesis of our talk today is was really started by my daughter, Hannah, who's 11. And she is loves sports, big soccer player. And she said to me a few weeks ago, she's like, Dad, you only usually talk to men about sports. Why is that? And I thought that was a very critical and fair statement. And so I said, I am going to go to the guru of what I think is a fascinating topic. This year is the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which I believe was enacted in 1972. And if I'm not mistaken, Jeannie, you started at DePaul, a four-star athlete, tennis, volleyball, basketball, and I think then women's softball. Can you talk a little bit about what women's sports looked like at the collegiate level back in the early 70s? Sure. Um, first, I want to give a big shout out to Hannah for being so vigilant <laughs> and for using her voice at home with her dad and letting him know how important it is for him to engage women and talk about sports. So good for you, Hannah. Um, back in the 70s when I first started at DePaul, so I started in 74, and like you noted, Title IX did pass in June of 1972, and institutions around the country of higher education were starting to plan or or, um, engage in elevating women's sports from a club level to varsity sports level. Some had already been pretty proactive about it. Um, At DePaul, our our early days, um, you know, were, were pretty meager. Um, but at the same time, I think you have to recognize at that time, probably the only men's sport that was really supported at a high level at DePaul at the time was men's basketball. So um, it didn't take a lot to catch women's sports up to track and field and golf and tennis and, um, you know, some of the other sports that DePaul had at the time. But, you know, we rode around and we drove our own cars, mostly to competition. Um, we wore pretty much the same uniform for three of the sports. I wore the same uniform for basketball, volleyball, and softball when we had softball. Um, for uh, tennis, you know, you had to wear a, a tennis skirt or a pair of tennis shorts and and uh, appropriate, you know, at that time you were still wearing all white for tennis. It was rare you know, you could wear your school color for your shirt, but you were still wearing white pretty much for tennis for all the time. But um, yeah, we bought our own shoes. We bought our own clothes. Um, sometimes we supplemented meals on the road ourselves. Um, you know, we had part-time coaches and sometimes we had volunteer coaches. And so, you know, the, the evolution of women's sports at DePaul is really uh, a wonderful journey if you track it, you know, year by year, because it was shortly after that, you know, after I'd gotten to DePaul in 74, by the time I got to 1976, they were offering scholarships. Our travel started to improve. Our opportunity for facilities started to improve. We started to have um, coaches who were a little bit more than part-time, or if they were full-time in the building, um, that added to to what we were doing in in a pretty special way, because you had access to that coach pretty much throughout the day when you're to and from classes and the like. Um, and uh, just, you know, overall, there was beginning, becoming more and more of an acceptance. Um, and it was it wasn't as a big, you know, everybody says, oh, my gosh, you played four sports in college. You know, it was a different time um, because one sports season pretty much ended. The next season began. And um, we also at the time 
there, there weren't conference affiliations for women's sports yet. We played it in what was called the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, which was a terrific organization, the AIAW, and each state had their own organization. So we basically played a state tournament type of format. Um, you could play schools from all over the country, but to act, to have access to the national championship, you played a state tournament and then you went to the regional tournament and then to the national tournament. So that's kind of what the format was like at that time. And there were a lot of women who played at least two sports. Um, and most of us had played sports in high school, at, for, especially for those of us that had gone to all girls private schools and all girls Catholic schools. Um, but candidly there, you know, when I started, um, when I was in high school, there weren't any state championships yet in the state of Illinois for girls. You remember, I mean, growing up in your family, I, I would imagine when you had a pacifier, you were told you're playing a sport. Knowing that, <laughs> that a fair statement, knowing your family, like you didn't have a choice. You're playing sports. Yeah. And- you know what? We grew up, my mom was, my mom was athletic. You know, my mom played softball and, and my mom was a swimmer. So, you know, we had a small little pool in our backyard, you know, like a three and a half foot pool. You know, there were six children in our family. And so, you know, my mom had to find a way to keep us amused during the summertime. But, you know, we we rode our bikes to the park. Um, you know, we went to Stony Island Park, which was at 87th and Jeffrey and the South Shore neighborhood. And, and um, you know, we ran track and we played game. We played you know, whatever games we could participate, whether you were a little girl or a little boy. But yeah, I mean, I had four brothers. I had a sister and four brothers and my sister was more the cheerleader type. And my brothers played football and basketball and baseball. And, and so, you know, um, and they were all closer to my age. My sister was four years older, uh, but you know, I, I have a brother, Eugene, who's a year younger, Michael, who's two years younger and David, who's five years younger. So it was a lot easier to, you know, hustle up and, and pick teams and, have my own team with at least two or three of my little brothers, you know, to, to play baseball on the corner with, or to play softball or whatever the case was. So yeah, pretty much, pretty much, but it, it really came from my mom. You know, my mom, wow. like I said, really encouraged us all to be athletic. Do you remember when title nine was approved? Was it a monumental thing? Because I was trying to do some research on it. And, and just for those that are, are not aware it essentially states that no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity. Do you remember being in high school and hearing about this? And because I think I heard you say that in high school, there were not state tournaments. And then all of a sudden you're thrusted into a college level. What are your memories of when that was passed? Here's what I remember, you know, in high school, I remember the civil rights um, movement and I remember the civil rights act being passed. Specifically, I don't remember Title IX at that time. You know, I was probably would have been a sophomore or junior in high school. Uh, but I remember my mom being very vigilant and very active in our neighborhood uh, with regard to, um, you know, the, the whole civil rights movement. And uh, we lived in a, in a very diverse neighborhood and went to very diverse private Catholic school. And, um, you know, my mom always encouraged us to be respectful of, of everyone. And, you know, we had friends who we would have sleepovers with who were of different ethnicities and, and different colors. And, and, and so, you know, we kind of grew up in, in that environment. And uh, I'm really grateful because, you know, my parents were probably so much more forward thinking than I think a lot of parents at the time. But I remember my mom actually, you know, talking about that. Uh, And then when I got to college, you know, then I started to pay a little bit more attention because I realized, you know, that I had had this pretty good experience playing sports in high school that were organized that, um, you know, 
was really starting to, I think, take on a different shape at DePaul. You know, I think DePaul was uh, very interested in providing access and opportunities for women. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of encouragement. I was an education major and there were a lot of other education majors. But I think what was really clear as you look through the history of Title IX, you know, and, and this is the part of the history that I like to tell all of our student athletes. When I first started at DePaul, if you were a woman in college, and I'm sure your dad could remind you of this from because he's a, a little bit ahead of me in his time um, as, a, as an educator. But pretty much most women were either going to be teachers or nurses. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't until Title IX passed in 1972 that you started to see quotas be lifted on business schools and healthcare pr- professions or healthcare schools, um, communications, journalism, and technology, you know, every major field that you could possibly imagine, there were quotas. So you pretty much had to be the best woman in your graduating class from high school that was coming to any college or university at the time to compete for maybe two or three spots that were available for women to engage in in those activities, those academic activities, which were very different than our male counterparts. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you know, you could pretty much most guys who were being admitted to college had to meet the requirements, but women with like requirements um, weren't getting into business school or weren't getting into medical professions outside of nursing or weren't going into technology or, or communications or any other field that you could possibly imagine. So, you know, the, the best consequence of title nine that I think goes completely unnoticed in addition to what it provides for sports is that it opened up this whole new world for American women and Hmm. uh, professionally. And, you know, so you've seen the glass ceiling shattered and in every profession that you could possibly imagine. Unfortunately, athletic administration is is still a little bit behind uh, for women overall, but the opportunities for women in coaching and, um, you know, women in in leadership positions has improved um, tremendously during that time. I would never have thought that Title IX would also be directly involved into the change in the way that we view the women workforce. I I had no idea that was even a part of it. Oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievably significant. And, and I will tell you even further from that, um, that I think a lot of that goes unnoticed by a lot of people when title IX passed, you know, colleges and universities were, um, you know, having to act quickly, you know, otherwise they were going to be in violation and risk, you know, the potential for a lawsuit. So, you know, there were a lot of athletic directors at the time who, you know, almost 100% of were all men who um, were like, well, we can't provide all this access, offering these new sport offerings, facilities, coaching, Mm -hmm. infrastructure, you know, travel and gear for all these women's sports when, you know, we've kind of been treating men's track and cross country and soccer and baseball and golf and, and tennis and wrestling you know, almost, you know, like they were second class to football and basketball. And so, um, you know, what really happened then is that institutions started to make this really significant push to elevate all their other men's sports programs. And again, you know, a consequence, a really good consequence of that was that there were these now offerings for more male student athletes. And it it really, with the, with the access and, and, opportunity focus, you started to see more and more minority males um, not only enter into college, but have more access to scholarship opportunities. Because when programs were elevating scholarship opportunities for women, 
they were like, well, we can't do this for, for women alone and, and not do it for the men. So, um, you know, it, it really was, I think, a pretty significant um, time in, uh, in the history of intercollegiate athletics overall. And I think, you know, one of the things that you can truly appreciate about the intercollegiate model um, as it exists is that, you know, most of our Olympic athletes in the United States are trained on our college campuses. You know, prior to the time that we use professional um, athletes for, you know, sports like basketball and tennis and, um, you know, soccer and, um, you know, baseball, you know, all, all of the athletes, and many of those athletes, obviously, too, were trained on our college campuses in the United States, which is very different than the club system that you see, uh, especially in Europe and, and around the world. So, not only did Title IX have an impact for um, women and men um, and provide more access and opportunity for minority men in the United States, but y- y- there also started to be this huge commitment to women's sports outside of the European com- countries, which had had a pretty significant commitment um, in Europe. But um, you started to see more European countries step up their commitment to women's sports and then you know, other nations and other continents um, increase their awareness and increase their um, opportunities for women in sports. So that one little change, that one little mm-hmm. law in the United States in June of 1972 changed the world. It literally wow. changed the world. Yeah. I also love how you talked about the civil rights movement and how your mother, th- that was embedded in your head as well. And just the equality for people, I think. And I would imagine, and we'll get to in a few minutes, we have a very long way to go still when it comes to equality. Um, but I, I just want to point out, I was on the website earlier today, the the women leader in college sports, which I think you're familiar with, and they uh-huh. have their big um, event coming up and their their tagline was Phoenix Rising, spelled P-H-O-E-N-I-X for nine, rising. I thought that was pretty clever. And you did mention about the inequality in athletic directors. What percentage, and I have the receipts, Jeannie, so you can't, you can't, you know, no bullshitting me, which I, I know you, you, you're okay with profane language. I've heard you a couple of times, but what, what percentage of athletic directors do you think there are in division one sports? Of women? Um, women. I, I think the, the last time I looked, I, it was somewhere between 15 and maybe 20%. Yep. Nailed Is it, it. Am I right? 15%. Yeah. And only five out of the 65 athletic directors at schools in the power five are held by women. So my question then to you is what is it going to take to have conversations that we're having to literally change? Because if I'm not mistaken, 50% of all athletes are women, correct? In college. I mean, that's probably what the statistics say. Yes. Yeah. I would say pretty, I would say that's pretty, I'd say that's probably pretty consistent. Yeah. So Um, how do we go from the conversation to, to the action of prioritizing gender diversity across these organizations? It's it's not a hard formula, Mark. It, it's really not. You know, I think, and you know, one of the things that's been difficult, um, I, I think, because there's always given a lot of lip service to how there's going to be improvement and there's going to be better management of um, engaging more women at leadership levels. There's no shortage of women. So let me make that let me make that clear right now. There's no shortage of women leaders in intercollegiate athletics. There are some amazing women leaders and there are some outstanding um, candidates for athletic directors positions um, who are women. It's really about being given the opportunity. Um, And so, you know, if you really cut down to it and you, you know, do a quick look at it, um, you you have to look at who's doing the hiring and you have to look at, you know, the search firms. And I, I, 
you know, know a lot of people who work in the search firms and I think they're making a more concerted effort to have women in their pool, but it's not just, an, it's not enough to have women in your pool when you're a president hiring an athletic director. You know, the university um, presidents really have to make a stronger commitment to hiring women in these leadership roles. Um, they've done it for provosts and for academic officers at the university. They've done it for administrative officers in the university, um, but they have yet to really embrace hiring women in the athletic director's role. And, and again, I'm going to assure you there are ample numbers of extremely qualified people who can hold these positions. But, you know, people like to hire other people that look like them. And mm-hmm. I think they're afraid of pushback from donors and boosters. And, you know, people think that in order to be able to manage football, you have to have played football or to manage men's basketball. You have to have played men's basketball or, you know, be familiar with and have had lunch with that crowd or that has to be your inner circle. And it's it's such um, it, there's so much bias in it. Um, but that that's where the change has to happen. But and, and the and the reason the change has happened slowly is that you know every time we have a change in executive director at the NCA level, to somebody's the previous strategic plan, and then it sort of falls off the map, and then you have to have like a national crisis where you have a student athlete like a year ago at the women's final at the women's NCA tournament who takes a picture of the disparities between the weight room equipment that she had at her NCA tournament site compared mm-hmm. to the weight room equipment that was available to her male counterparts that were also participating in the NCA tournaments. And then the whole world kind of loses its mind and says, oh, this is terrible. You know, we've got to change this and we've got to make immediate changes. So, you know, in an instant, in a moment, we make those quick changes because they're so glaringly wrong and it's so, you know, glaringly biased against women that, you know, we, we do the quick fix, but then over the long term, we haven't made the big fix there. There's no reason why half the country and half of the institutions in the United States shouldn't have women athletic directors. There's mm-hmm. none because there's no shortage and there's plenty of qualified people. It's all about the willingness to give women the opportunity and the access. So if I'm, my daughter listening to this, the the statistics that I reported seem pretty negative. So what advice would you have then for someone who's hearing this and like, well, this doesn't really seem fair. And you could even talk about the inequality in the WNBA pay, which I think is what, like $71,000. There's just this article on ESPN, if you haven't read it, where they took four of the best WNBA players and talked about the fact that they have to play overseas for eight months out of the year because they can't even Brianna Stewart, I think is there. And of course, Brittany Griner has been held in Russia forever. So what would you say then to young girls or young women listening on what they can do then? And I don't think it just pertains to just sports administration, but how do they continue to break through and persevere and learn these really essential skills that they need to be as successful as they can? Well, I, I think, you know, obviously, you know, you talked about the WNBA and, and, you know, I understand that's a business model and, you know, the, the, the dollars come from what they're paid for television and the dollars come from their corporate partners and what they sell in season ticket sales. And, and, you know, I think what's, what's so uncomfortable for, for most of us um, that have been fighting this fight for as long as we have is that, you know, the, the people who really control what people know about women's athletics, for example, or 
women's professional sports are the media. Um, you know, I think the owners of those entities and certainly the colleges and universities would like to have more um, more media awareness of the, the, the sports that they're sponsoring. And certainly like if you're at the WNBA to have a, a beat reporter from every local newspaper, whatever the case might be. And so you have, you know, these, you know, big newspapers and, and now, you know, with all the exposure that there is on the internet and, and who owns all those, um, you know, businesses um, are typically men that don't either have an interest in sports or haven't had enough pushback from women viewership to, um, you know, really encourage them to, to do more. You know, like we, we saw that there was a, a huge jump in, in um, coverage for the WNBA last year mm-hmm. when, you know, the, they did went on an amazing run and yeah, I couldn't be more proud of them, especially because Allie Quigley, who's a former DePaul women's basketball player was on that team. I was so proud and so happy for them, but wow, so long overdue. I mean, the WNBA and, and the Chicago sky has been around for a long time. And, you know, that's kind of the first time most people really even noticed that we had a women's professional basketball team in Chicago as it took for them to have to get to a championship for people to know who they were, which is completely not true if you're a Bulls or a Blackhawks or a White Sox fan or, or, you know, Bears, every, all of our professional teams. So, um, you know, that's, that's where the biggest gap is, I think. And I think that's because, you know, people are, are paying attention to what they see on television. They're paying attention to what they, if they're reading a newspaper online or if they're reading any sort of, uh, you know, a, a newsreel that's related to sports, um, there's not very much coverage of women's sports. You know, you talked about the number of women's athletic directors. You know, I think uh, the number of for media coverage in the United States for women is about 10%. So, you know, that, that would indicate, uh, why the, and I, and I don't think the interest is that low. Um, and I think what's got to happen that has, that had to happen when title nine first came about as well, is that not only do you have to have women using their voices, but you also have to have men who will mm-hmm. advocate for women yep. and men who will say that this is, you know, we, we need to stand up for, and there's a, you know, this is egregious and we need to make this better. And, you know, there shouldn't be this kind of disparity. Um, you know, one of the things that I've really loved about my career and during my time that I was athletic director is that all the guys that I came up with in the profession who were my colleagues, um, in addition to the women that were my colleagues, were um, grew up with Title IX. So, um, and, and it might be that we have to go another generation, you know, that maybe it's going to take us another 10 or 20 years to realize that. But I, I think it's, it's unfortunate if it takes us that long to do that. So I, I would I would say to Hannah is that, you know, as you grow into your teenage years and and, you know, you have the right to vote and you have the right to make choices about, you know, um, who you want to vote for or the products that you want to buy. And, you know, that you look and support women owned businesses and you look and support companies and businesses and schools and institutions that are really supportive of women. And I think that's how, you know, you can you can make an impact. And, and I think that would be my advice to Hannah as somebody who's going to grow up um, with the benefits of Title IX, hopefully, um, but to really see the change from an administrative standpoint, I think mm-hmm. is really critical. I tell people all the time that, you know, the, the most important reason why you want to have women in athletic directors roles is just the sheer humanity of it. How important it is for young men and young women at the college level to see women lead an enterprise like intercollegiate athletics that has been very dominated by men, 
but how important mm-hmm. it is to celebrate the humanity of women and the humanity of men as well and the humanity of all peoples. Um, you know, and, and I think that's the piece that gets a little bit lost about how important it is for um, young men and young women alike to celebrate, you know, the, the opportunities that are afforded to men and women and that, and those opportunities being comparable. Uh, you, you know, you, you would, um, and, and that's not to say that there still aren't biases in business. I'm sure there are still, you know, people, whether it be law firms or accounting firms or wherever, where um, women have not, have may, maybe have been passed over by male counterparts, sometimes that are either less or qualified. You know, mm-hmm. I, I always would say to, to the to the headhunters and the search firm guys when they would tell me about why they hired somebody who was male instead of female. I said, you know, I'd be curious if you just did a blind resume test and you didn't know mm-hmm. what the names were. I guarantee you that the, the woman has probably had um, as good of it, if not better experience. But because she was a woman, she may have gotten passed over. And I think sometimes that happens with um, colleges and universities as well. In your experience, what do you think makes a strong leader? Um, well, I think you have to have knowledge. I think you have to have knowledge. And I think you have to have the skill to be able to bring people together and build consensus and be collaborative. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's not just about, um, you know, being sort of putting yourself in sort of a dictatorial or a, you know, position as a boss. I, I think, you know, you have to respect, um, you know, the, the you have to show respect. I think you have to be a really good listener. Um, you know, I think you have to really um, understand how it is and what's important to the goals that you're trying to achieve for your enterprise or your organization. And, you know, what's your roadmap? What's your strategic plan to get there? And, and then I think it's to surround yourself with people who can help you do that. But, you know, it does take knowledge and, and skill of an, and having that expertise. But, you know, for, for me, you know, the best leaders that I've experienced, and I think I, I've tried to be one of those, are people who build consensus and people who are collaborative. Um, and for me, you know, the, one of the most important skills you have to have or what, I, what I've always valued has been the ability to listen. And I think you have to lead with integrity. I think you have to have um, an honesty and, um, you know, and a truthfulness about who you are as a person and uh, what it is that you're trying to do in in motivating people and and have a fair sense of how it is that you're going to bring everybody together to to work together. Did you ever, and this is, I'm sure the answer is going to be yes, but did you ever deal a lot with parents of athletes? Because I know we talk a lot about working with the athlete and the student athlete and making sure that they can advocate for themselves. Did you deal a lot with their parents? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would deal with parents all the time. I mean, I, you know, I'll be very, I'll be very honest with you. Um, you know, when we would recruit student athletes at DePaul, I would always tell our coaches, I really want to meet the parents. Um, I think it's really important that not only I meet them, but that our parent, that our student, our coaches meet them as well. Um, you know, how a student athlete, prospective student athlete engages with their parent when they're on a, an official visit or they're in, in a conversation with, with their coach and athletic director, whoever the case might be. Um, it's important to watch how that student, that young person responds to their parent. You know, if they're very engaging and they're respectful of their parent and um, they listen when their parent talks, 
they don't talk over them or they're not an eye roller, um, you know, and, and they really are respectful of their parent. That's a student athlete that I want to have. And it also tells you a lot about the parenting of the student athlete. And, um, you know, if you have parents who demand um, and have taught their children respect and, and how to respect authority and, and certainly how to be a good teammate and how to be a good friend, um, how to be part of something bigger than yourself, um, you know, those are the kinds of student athletes that usually help build programs and usually help make you very successful um, without having to spend a lot of time teaching um, people, who, you know, young people who are 18 to 20 years old, 18 to 22 years old, um, how to manage themselves as a young adult. You know, I, I would always tell our coaches, the last thing we want to do is, is recruit a, a prospective student athlete and, and then think that we're going to undo in four years what somebody else spent 18 years doing. Hmm. So, you know, candidly, I, I would want to, um, you know, I always wanted to meet the parents. And, and so when and if we had an issue later on, or if and even if it was something, you know, like a, an injury uh, that a student athlete maybe had incurred or, you know, they're having difficulty in a class or, you know, they were having a mental health issue or whatever the case might be. Having built that relationship with the parent, at least of having met them um, and then seeing them at events and contests and connecting with them and saying hello, um, you know, we're, we're really together. They're doing their parenting thing and we're doing our teaching and coaching and mentoring thing. You know, it really does take, you know, all of us to help that student athlete grow to the, and maximize their potential. So for me, you know, meeting and talking to the parents is really critical. Um, very fortunately, when you, when you have parents that you have good relationships with and, and you recruit the kind of student athletes that are going to, um, you know, be more mature and, and probably super engaged and help and develop their team, you probably don't have a lot of disciplinary situations. And we've had mm -hmm. a few over the years, but not many. I was at my daughter's soccer game. She plays on this U11 soccer team. We were in Vernon Hills because nothing nothing is better celebrating Mother's Day than being in Vernon Hills when you live in Lake. <laughs> for the record, my wife. But that in a Culver's dinner really was my, my, my <laughs> path to romance, Jeannie. So I'm at this soccer game, and there's my U11 daughter on one field, and there's like a U8 game on the other. And it was insanity. Within a 10-minute period, I heard two kids look at their parents and say, would you just shut up and leave me alone? Because the parent would not stop criticizing, telling the kid where to go. And does it ever get to the point, though, as an athletic director? Because I think so much of what you were saying, too, also to me smells like really good business to build connections with people. When you have to have those those awkward conversations, did it usually go through a coach to the parent or were you the one who would have to make that call? Well, you know, let me just say, first of all, if it was about, you know, playing time or something like that, I, I don't negotiate playing time and, and, and neither do our coaches, you know, but I would say, um, you know, I would tell parents at orientation, I always had a parent orientation at the beginning of every um, school year for the freshman, incoming freshman and transfer student parents, just to go over our student athlete handbook and to really sort of put down the, the, the guardrails of, of how it is that we could mutually get to our end goal, which is to help them graduate a son or daughter from, from college and also um, do our very best to help them maximize their potential. Um, but if you're, you know, in a, in a, you know, parental space where, you know, you want to be the coach of your kid and you think that you know better than our coaches or, um, you know, that that's probably not a real good recipe for, 
success for your student athlete. Most student athletes, I will tell you, are mortified if they find out that their parents called either their coach or called the athletic director. And, you know, because of FERPA, we had a little bit of, um, you know, some guardrails ourselves, Mark, as administrators with the Federal Education Right to Privacy, Family uh, Education Right to Privacy Act. You know, if you're at 18 years old and your parent calls, you know, I can't really have a conversation with that parent without the student athlete's permission. So when we would mm-hmm. go back to the student athletes and said, hey, your mom called me and, you know, this is the message they left. What would you like me to do? I would tell you probably nine times out of 10, that student athlete would be like, I got this. I'll, I'll take care of it. You know, um, but sometimes, you know, kids would call home and just sort of vent about their day, had a hard practice, you know, hard time with a, a class, didn't do as well as they expected in a in a, in an event or a game or, you know, whatever the case might be. And so, you know, we, we would try to let parents know on the front end, you know, we, we've got to manage that. But, you know, if we're if we're in a mental health crisis or, you know, something like that, that's a different kind of a management about the way we're going to approach a situation than, you know, if it's to talk about playing time or, you know. Um, I feel really, really bad for the little ones um, when their parents uh, – I've witnessed this with my nieces and nephews and, and you know, um, family members. Uh, my brother, Frank, who you know is a high school football mm-hmm. coach, um, you know, would, and he'd be at his son's football practice or his baseball games or his hockey games. If it was, you know, baseball or football, he'd take his lawn chair and, you know, the Sunday tribune or sun times and go and sit as far away from all the other parents as he possibly could. Um, and let the coaches coach. And it's unbelievable. Jeannie, that- it's un it's unbelievable. I actually have to wear headphones. It is, it to me is, it ruins the experience for all kids. And these are normal, rational human beings. And I just, I, I, it is, it is so sad to me. And it is like that there's this innocence that just is completely lost. And to me, it's all result driven. You know, when they're winning, things are great, but as soon as there's adversity, let's scream at my kid. And and you know what? And that is so wrong because it sends all the wrong messages. I mean, you do want, even when they're little, you want them to understand it's, it's okay to lose. It's not the end of the world. We learn so much more about ourselves sometimes in failure than we do in in winning. Um, you know, it, it's not a bad thing to fail. And just because you lose at you know eight year old soccer uh, or eleven year old soccer doesn't mean that you're a loser person. It just means that on that day the other team played better than mm-hmm. you did, and that, that's all it means. And, and sometimes I think you know parents don't recognize and understand the harm that they're causing. Um, and how many kids choose not to go on and play at the high school level? Um, you know, parents who um, don't have a background, and even if you're a parent who has a background, you can't coach your own kids. You're just way too emotionally um, connected and way too emotionally invested to be able to coach your own your own kids. And I say that even the most talented coaches, and, you know, I've had a brother, my brother Frank coached his son in, in high school, and, you know, huge coached his girls in, in softball, and, you know, they all had terrific experiences. But, you know, there were there were boundaries. And, you know, I think my brothers did a really good job about setting up boundaries for, you know, you're with your friends, you're with your friends, and I'm going to treat you like everybody else when you're playing our, the sport. And, you know, but, you know, if you don't have the expertise, if you're not an educator and a teacher or a coach, you know, you really don't have any business standing on the sideline screaming at, at your kid other than to encourage them, you know, encourage them to, you know, play hard and work hard. Um but, you know, to chastise kids for making mistakes is, you know, it's, it, that's not healthy. You know, you're, you're no. really you're, not, you're really not adding to a, a mental health um, 
a, a good mental health environment for them. You know, you're really setting them up for sadness, depression. Um, to think I disappointed my my parents is is one of the you know I think hardest things that kids have to cope with. And I do think you know that it's not bad to learn how to cope with that if you you know did something that was bad or you know you did something that was inappropriate. But you know, making a mistake playing a game is not bad or inappropriate. That's just yeah. you know. Unless you're on sports like, that's a little bit different story. So, Jeannie, we're going to jump to the final part, my world famous lightning round. Now, I, I hope you have prepared for this. This is like going into the arena with uh, Pat Summit and Doug Bruno, you know, seeing who's going to serve, you know, two people enter, one person leaves. So, here's my questions for you. Besides Joe Ponsetto, who I think you know very well. Who is the greatest DePaul basketball player? Wow, that's a that's an interesting one. Um, that's a really interesting one. I um, I mean, I, I I think it's probably you know a combination of Mark Aguirre and Terry Cummings. I think they both were, you know, fantastic players, and I had the opportunity to see them both play. I didn't. I never saw George Mike in play, but. You know, I heard he was pretty good and he got named the, you know, best player of the first half century of the last century. So he must have been pretty good, too. Um, I look at our um, women's basketball players. Um, you know, I, I, I named two guys because they achieved at such a high level, not only at the collegiate level, but professionally as well. But I think when you look at, you know, women's basketball, you, you know, we've had some tremendous and some great athletes. But the one that's, you know, probably stood out and has had the best career as a professional, um, as well as a great collegiate player, is Allie Quigley. Mm -hmm. I used to love watching Latasha Byers play. Remember her? Yeah, she was, Tot was great. She was a force. She was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, she was a terrific player. Um, You know, I think what you have to love about um, Allie as you watch her play and as she's grown over over the years in, in her game um, she is such a, a terrific athlete. Um, there's a, a gracefulness and um, uh, an athleticism to her that um, is, is goes beyond what you what you when you look at her. You know, she's long and lanky, um, but she's a she's a terrific athlete and um, has had amazing success. Yeah. So there have been a lot of student managers in DePaul athletics. But who has had the biggest impact on DePaul Athletics, Jeannie? Oh, by far, Mark Greenberg. I mean, it's just that's not even yes. easy. Yes. <laughs> that's that's easy. Yes. <laughs> that's easy. Yes. Greatest three years of my life was working with the DePaul women's softball team. As I tell people, I learned more from Eugene Lenti as a leader and a coach than I could have in years. And that was as I look back on my college days, that was an amazing opportunity that I had to experience. And that's so great to hear you hear, hear you say that because you come from a, a, a line of educators. I mean, your dad was a tremendous teacher and an administrator. No, I think you just an outstanding teacher and coach. Um, you know, I, I think that um, I don't think anybody prepares a team better for him. I think he and Doug Bruno at, at DePaul are two of the best guys at preparing their team. And, and um, you just, you know, got his other superpower, I, I think, is just the, uh, the drills and, and the coaching repetition that he puts in place to help his student athletes be really successful. And, uh, and you obviously got to, to learn from him, so you know what his skills are. But when it comes to managers, um, 
you know, wow, you know, what, what you've done and, and your career as an educator, as an, and a leader in your field. And, you know, I've Thank seen you. you work your magic at Fred's camp um, with both the, the little kids to the upper grades of the elementary school kids. And, um, and of course, the way you manage the relationships uh, with the parents. I think the reason you. you guys have been so successful has a lot to, you know, you're a, you're an incredibly great chip off the old block and, um, and, Big you've, shoes to fill. and you've, and you've add you've added your own special touch um, to how it is. And, you know, I watch you every morning when I would go to work in, in the summer and um, positivity just flows out of you like a, you know, like a big ocean of water. Well, thank you. Who has had a greater influence on the landscape of sports, Muhammad Ali or Serena Williams? Tough question, Jeannie. Oh, that is a tough question. That is a tough question. Um, you know, you know, for me, because I'm, I'm a tennis player and I played tennis, um, I would have to say, you know, Serena has been just absolutely incredibly phenomenal and uh, has had, you know, terrific staying power. And she's obviously still in a point in time in her career where, she could still, you know, whip whip it up with the best of them. Um, but boy, you, you can't discount what Muhammad Ali did in his career. And I, I think the the barriers and um, you know the the leadership that he took on with an advocate, advocacy for for civil rights and for people of color. So you you got to give him you've got to give him that. Um, but boy, I I, I I'm going to probably have to. My final answer is going to be Serena. I agree. I agree. All right. Two more questions. Yep. That's best sports movie. Um, my favorite sports movie is a league of their own. Um, of course. It's actually one of my all time. Yeah, that was movies. Really it's, for you. it's such a great, it's such a great story about a journey of, um, you know, various groups of women who come from all these different parts of the country and, you know, really, um, just come together in such a, a special way. And, and the fact that it's based on, on a true story, you know, I, I think it's just such a great historical um, tale of women in this country, um, you know, in the forties. And, um, and I think it was such a trailblazing movie for generations of women to come to watch. So it's, it's probably my favorite sports movie for sure. Yeah. I, it's, and I think it was filmed, Oh, that was remember Babe? Yeah. Wasn't that from around DePaul, I think? Yeah, with, it was uh, John so, sure. I think I want to say that they taught Madonna how to hit a softball on Wish <laughs> Field. Right. So there was Wish wow. it, it was it was filmed at Wrigley and parts of it were filmed at, at Wrigley. Um, I don't know if you remember Mary High's husband, Johnny High, was one of the umpires in the movie, and so was Peter Wagner, who was our one of our photographers um, at DePaul. They were both umpires in, in that movie. So very cool. And then and my I, last I, question. I, gotta, I, gotta, I do got to give a shout out to rookie of the year as well, though, because my brother, Michael is, is a batter. Do you know that Mike? Lentz yes. Oh player. yes. But yeah, I, I think every time I see Mike, he probably mentions that to me. <laughs> every now and then. Um, yeah. Um, actually my kids call him uncle Mike, which I think is kind of weird and funny at the same time. But my, my last question <laughs> is for any young girls, boys listening, what advice would you have for them is in terms of leadership and growth and how to reach their potential? Um, you know, I, I think, I think it's really important to understand the power of your voice and um, to be well-learned 
um, to know as much as you can uh, about the topics that you want to be really good at and expert at. Um, I think that's really important because sometimes I think people like to talk and don't really have a lot of background in what they're talking about. Um, I think it's important to be hardworking and to be diligent, um, to be honest and, and truthful. Um, but I, I also think it, it's really important to use your voice and to take advantage of the opportunity that you have to vote for the leaders in your community, to vote for the leaders of our country, and not just once in a while, but all the time. Um, I think to be very civic-minded and to pay attention to what's going on in your community, um, I think are really important things for young people to learn at, at young ages and to understand that um, their voice is really important and it's really meaningful. And sometimes they're speaking not only for themselves, but for other people who maybe don't have the same opportunity to speak. Mm. Perfect. When I thought about this topic on Title IX in sports, there was only one person that I knew that could be on this show. And I want to just thank you, Jeannie. I know you're, you got a lot going on. I really want to say thank you and how much I enjoyed the chance to talk to you about this. Mark, it's always a pleasure. I really, truly, you're one of my all-time favorites, and, and I'm so glad. And I want to give a big shout-out once again to Hannah for <laughs> prompting you to engage and involve more women in your podcast. So, I'm in. All right. That, that's fair. I may have to bleep out the word shit, what I said a few minutes ago. I think these are the Um, All right, Jeannie, thank you so much. Have a good rest of the day. All right, you do the same, Mark. Okay, all right, bye. bye. A special thank you again to Jeannie for taking time to join me. These conversations are really important. And if you have children, sons and daughters, I think that this type of education is really important to spend time and learning about the evolution of, of rights. And although I will never get political on this episode, it's even more important now when we talk about the Supreme Court and the need to have voices. And I think that this celebration of Title IX on the 50th anniversary is just very, very important topic to have. And if you're looking for a really cool podcast, it is called In Their Court, produced by NBC. Episode two is called No Girls Allowed, and it talks about the 1970s and what happened with the, the, the Louisiana Tech women's basketball team. And so I really encourage you to continue to have these conversations with your family. If you're someone who manages employees, I think that there's probably a great lesson in this podcast for you to take out of on the perception and how we view gender in leadership roles and to really take into account the things that Jeannie shared. And there's, as I said in the podcast, there's probably no better authority on this topic than Jeannie. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any comments or feedback for me, please email me at mark, M-A-R-K, at elevatedleader.com. And I'm wishing you and your family a wonderful and pleasant week. Thanks again, everyone. <laughs>